Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. This week we find out about some great ways to use our insect kingdom to help us understand challenges facing the human world, whether that be wildfires, jet lags, changing of the season, to climate change. There's many things we can learn from our insects and help apply to human life. Bugs are fascinating and all around us. In fact, bugs and insects are so numerous that they actually outnumber us across the world, and not only us, but all humans that have ever lived and ever will live, are vastly outnumbered by just the sheer number of bugs or species of bugs living on Earth right now. So there are huge numbers of these bugs out there of all different types, flavours, varieties, and with all different variations on coping strategies for every kind of problem that you can imagine. What could be bothersome to a human on a human-sized scale for an insect on their tiny scale is even more challenging and dangerous. So it's no surprise then that scientists turn to our insect brethren to help understand some of the challenges facing our world. From everything to coping to the dangers and challenges of jet lag or time zone shifts or the changing of a season, to all the way through to how we protect ourselves from diseases and even things like climate change and the changing effect of increased temperatures on our climate. Insects provide the perfect laboratory to examine these things. And a recent series of grants from the European Research Council have enabled researchers in the Czech Republic, Austria, and Israel to investigate through insects some of these human challenges that we view on a macro level. Turning first to the problem of jet lag. Now, as we would have reported previously, the Nobel Prize for Physiology or Medicine in 2017 was awarded to Professor Jeffrey Hall, Professor Michael Rosebach, and Professor Michael Young for the discovery of a molecular mechanism that controls the circadian rhythm. And they did this through the study of fruit flies. Once again, a good example of how fruit flies and insects can help give us an insight into mechanisms that govern our daily lives as humans. Now, a researcher from the Czech Academy of Science has a research group called InfoTime. And this, this research group is looking at the not only the concept of circadian rhythm and body clocks, but also how animals and insects are able to adjust their understanding of the length of time of day. As the season changes, days become shorter or longer. And animals and insects actually have a pretty good way of adapting to this, which makes sense. If you're an insect, you want to hurry around and scare and find food during the light hours, you need to know with pretty good certainty when that starts to become shorter and shorter because you then need to change your behaviour. And based on an inspiration from the Nobel Prize winning research, Dr. David Dizel from InfoTime Group in the Czech Academy of Sciences is trying to find a similar molecular mechanism that helps govern insect and animals' understanding of the length of sunlight hours in a day. Or basically, to see if they can understand that the, the days and nights are sort of changing in their lengths. And it makes sense, because... It could lead to the discovery of a biological mechanism, which we understand called the photoperiodic timer. This timer is what we're talking about here, this understanding of long days or short days. And it would make sense if circadian rhythm has a connection to a molecular mechanism, that a similar one exists for this photoreceptic timer. And to do this, these researchers took the hardy red firebug, which is a Scandinavian beetle, 
and they started to modify it using the CRISPR genome editing tool to see if they could produce bugs that have a circadian clock that assumes 22 hours length of day instead of the normal 24 hours length of days. And what that should do is, instead of having to wait for the seasons to change from summer to winter, they can basically simulate that by reducing the amount of hours in the day and sort of throwing them out of kilter. So by altering the genes, they can also investigate if it has any impact on their photoperiodic timer. And if they can confirm that this is, has a genetic variable impact, then that means that we understand that there could be a gene that is directly relating to both humans and animals' ability to cope with changing of days. And this would help explain why some people might have severe issues with both jet lag and changing seasons, whereas others may not have any effect. So turning from ants and dealing with jet lag or changing of the seasons, all the way to understanding of how creatures can deal with outbreaks of disease and building up immune systems. And we know in human society that we have developed, at least in the last 200 years, what we call vaccines. And vaccines help build our immune systems by giving us an exposure to a small quantity of that pr pathogen previously so that we can build up a response to it. And thus, once we have everyone immunized against that, it stops the spread of disease and prevents an epidemic from taking place. And just like that has benefit for human society, ants who live in a colony, or bees for that matter, are at severe risk of epidemics. Basically, as they have a tightly nested social group that is all in close proximity to each other, they are really, really susceptible to a disease epidemic breaking out. And so Dr. Sylvia Kremer from the social vaccines group at the Institute of Science and Technology in Austria, has been studying insects and how they form their own social immunity to protect themselves from infections. In particular, she's looked at ants. Now, ants often scavenge on dead animals or forage in soil full of spores, which may host fungal infections. And fungal infections are a pretty common threat for ants. And the problem is, if your ants are off foraging, finding and collecting spores on their bodies, when they receive return back to their nest, they're bringing with them all those powdered spores. And that could expose not just themselves, but the rest of their colony to the risk of infection. So how do ants deal with this? It's actually very, very interesting. Some ants act as basically cleaning ants. They subject the returning ants to a grooming, a cleaning cycle, where they use parts of their mouth to remove all these infectious particles and apply their own venom, formic acid, to the spores that they can't get rid of. So this prevents the spores from spreading and that, that are left behind and removes most of them. The even more interesting part is that the ants themselves don't get infected, even though they're like plucking away these infectious spores. And the reason is that even though there's a lot of pathogen transfer that occurs at this time from the cleaner from the host ant to the cleaner ant, what actually happens is because they're so often exposing themselves to these small quantities, little mouthfuls almost, of these pathogens, the ants are actually immunizing themselves. They're building up an immune system response. 
And in fact, the whole nest starts to gain and benefit from that boost to immune response. It kind of acts similar to developing the herd immunity that we see while providing vaccines to children. The ants are doing that themselves. Not only are they cleaning each other to prevent the outbreak from coming in, they're also vaccinating themselves at the same time. And that's a great lesson to, to understand that not only it's just humans who are benefiting from vaccines, but animals have been doing the same thing for thousands upon thousands of years. That's very, very interesting. Now, turning from vaccinations and immuno response to another challenge facing our environment, and that is, well, climate change. And the thing about climate change is that it makes weather extremes more extreme. And in particular, the global average temperature is increasing. Now, the interesting rule of biology is that the body size of a vertebrate should decrease as temperature increases. And this is due to a biological rule called Bergman's rule. And it's related to the heat loss in organisms. If you're small, you can lose heat faster. And if you're large, whoa, that's quite tough. It's very difficult for you to lose all that heat produced by your body. And we can see this in the size of animals, mainly birds and mammals. And these have decreased as the Earth has got warmer. But does that hold true for other things that aren't warm-blooded? For things like insects and beetles? Now, some 25% of all non-microspecific animal species are basically beetles. And that's quite interesting. So if we look if there's some kind of change in response to heat, because these animals are inhabiting a lot of the Earth, and their response to climate change is incredibly important for us as well. Because the change of the nature of the makeup of our insect kingdom will have flow-on impacts to both our plants, our livestock, and so on. So they measured a few thousand beetles from about 30 different species to see if there was any link, like seen in mammals, between increase in temperature and decrease in body size. And what they found was... No such trend. Beetles don't get any smaller. Uh, and they have been observing these for several years now. More importantly to beetles is local conditions, its availability of food, rather than the macroclimate conditions. And more importantly, when you try and isolate it down to maybe one type of beetle, not in the wild but in a lab, which is what they did for flower beetles, it's not. there is no direct link, right? So because they increase the temperature, and that temperature increase depending on the beetle's life stage, had different results. If you exposed adults, beetles, for a, to a low temperature, for example, they responded and adapted better. They acclimatized and coped. But if you exposed a larva stage to a cold temperature, they have a more likely increase to die or have some other negative impact. Which means that if you raise these beetles in warmer temperatures, it actually improves their cold tolerance because later in life, they're actually more resistant to change. But also, importantly, being acclimatised to these shocks of cold help the beetles to withstand other stresses like starvation or excessive heat. In general, it made them more resilient. So if there was no acclimatation during the juvenile stage or only in the adult stage, it can actually help them survive in these large shocks. You've got to protect them when they're young, but once they're through that stage, they actually have a really impressive ability to recover and boost themselves because they've improved their resiliency. And that's, I guess, a lesson for us all. Yes, there are higher risk periods, like when you're young or at elderly age, but humans are able to adapt to things too. And as long as you build on and improve that resiliency, then it actually can, we can do quite well.
Now, one of the big challenges facing our changing climate across our world is the increased rate of wildfires. Wildfires can be incredibly devastating and deadly, as we've recently seen in California. And places like Australia have the risk of bushfires known about for many, many years. We have had our own several large devastating fires. And the thing is, the animals that live in these forests actually require or need these fires to actually clear out periodically. Maybe the intensity or severity is getting worse, or the frequency is getting worse, but animals and the plants themselves from time to time do need these fires to come through. And in areas such as Florida's Apalachola National Forest, they conduct, like most places, controlled burns to help reduce the undergrowth and keep the forest healthy. And that's what they do in Florida in a three-year burn schedule. Now, a group of researchers from Florida State University, have been investigating the wildlife in these burnt-out regions post-burn to see how they recover after the fires have been lit and the forest starts to regrow. In particular, they've been looking at little beetles to see how they manage to recolonize after the burns. And beetles are such a small creature, they don't really have the opportunity to flee like some maybe larger mammals. And so when their whole neighborhood is burned down, well, what do they do? So they studied these little beetles in specifically to see how they recolonized and repopulated the regions and what kind of rate that they accomplished this at. Now, what actually happened is, they, they were, obviously there's a center point for the fire, particularly for a controlled burn. And so the scientists measured the rates of regrowth of these beetles in the main area and also in the surrounding neighborhood. And basically after about 35 months, the beetles were super abundant on the fridge of the burn, all the way up to about the 35-month point. After that, they sort of began to flip and be more strongly prevalently found in the center of the burn, in the area that was burned the most after that 35-month period, which is an interesting model. Basically, what they suspect is happening is that the beetles, after the fire, are starting from the edges, slowly starting to work their way back in towards the burnt-out area. But after a while, other creatures, predators, start to inhabit that outer fringe area that has been less burned, which makes sense. As the forest itself starts to recover, other animals move back in, meaning the little beetles are more at risk. And they flee in towards the most burnt area, and that becomes the area where they can survive the easiest without any predation, which is quite interesting. So they sort of spread back in, from the outside in, and then after a while, that center most burnt out area becomes a haven for the beetles, safe from other predators, and a great place to thrive in. And that's a very interesting example of how creatures can recover from a large disaster, like a big, like a bushfire or a wildfire. And it shows the model for how these beetles are recolonizing an area or a pattern. And it's great research because it shows what could be applied not only just to beetles, but other creatures as well. And understanding how the neighborhood and the larger area that has been impacted by a wildfire impacts any recovery efforts that these species try and undertake. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. This week we've learned about everything from vaccines, jet lag, climate change and recovery from wildfires and how insects can help us learn and cope better with these dramatic changes. Our ending theme was composed by Audio and Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.